Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement. In other words, people with a planetary purpose. My name is Julian Budelai, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Tyaga Prem Singh. Tyaga Prem is a Kundalini yoga teacher. He's the host at the Dharma Temple in Vancouver. And I met him last summer at the Kundalini Yoga Men's Camp outside of Vancouver. He's also the creator and host of Revealing the Diamond podcast. And the Revealing the Diamond podcast, as well as the Dharma Temple, are Aquarian Luminosity Lifestyle and Leadership Trainings, in short. So if you want to find this podcast, it's a regular dose of conscious conversations, spiritual teachings, profound meditations, and inspirations to live by in full creative flow, beyond dogma, beyond labels, just by being you and committing to your own practice. So with these words, welcome to the show, Tiago Prem. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm excited for our dialogue. I'm excited for our conversation. Where to start? I feel like, you know, Kundalini Yoga is something that people are either not familiar with or fully enthusiastic about. Um, definitely a teaching that has like connected with me over the last years and especially in the last year profoundly. And like I said in the intro, what I really appreciate about a lot of the um, teachers in that lineage, and especially you, is, is this like, just be you, find this access to being you. Maybe you can tell us a little bit how you were like transitioning from like living in Vancouver, having like a regular lifestyle that one can imagine to wearing a turban and growing a beard and being a different <laughs> Yeah, I'd be happy to touch on that. I often say uh, in my life, I had one foot in the nightclub and one foot in the ashram for most of my life. Um, and that's a challenging way to live, you know, because one person is up until the wee hours of the morning and the other person wakes up in the wee hours of the morning. So there's not a lot of time for rest, trying to maintain that kind of lifestyle. Um, but I did it for quite a while. I started meditating uh, 22 years ago when I was a teenager. And I was always drawn to mystical teachings as a kid. Um, my mom was just visiting us and she was like, oh, yeah, when you were like three years old, we met these missionaries from Africa and all the kids were playing and doing kid-like things. And you were just like wanted to hang around with these people who were <laughs> grown-ups and totally boring to kids, but they were really spiritual, she said, not not really like dogmatic religious people, but people of service in the world. And she said, I knew from that point that there was some sort of draw in you towards mystical things. And I, I've always been like that. And I've always loved music. Uh, and with music, that drew me into a world of, uh, you know, I never really had a real job for very long. I, I DJed in clubs, I played in bands. I loved uh, that sort of lifestyle and everything that came with it. Lots of drugs, lots of drinking, uh, that sort of thing. So those two ways of life are sort of hard to maintain over long periods of time. Uh, but I did my best. I often talk about Alan Watts, the philosopher. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar uh, with him. But I always say that Alan Watts was a blessing and a curse in, in my life because I learned a lot from him. Um, through the years, but also I excused some of my uh, issues with uh, substance because uh, he was a heavy drinker. He actually died from alcoholism. So I used to be like, 
you know, if Alan Watts can teach about Dharma and meditation and be drunk all the time, why can't I? Mm. And eventually I came to the realization, like you said, just be you. I, I don't need to be Alan Watts. I need to be myself. And, and that journey of that wake up call was a pretty painful one. Um, my partner and I, we had a previous studio, we had a new baby, um, and we had investors in the previous studio and they were really, uh, they were in a volatile relationship. I don't get too into details, but the point is, is that it was really stressful for me. And, uh, instead of leaning on my practice, I was leaning on the bottle. So I wasn't drinking for to be like in celebration or to enjoy life. I was drinking to cope. Um, and, uh. Yeah, I had a wake-up call during that time, and and the wake-up call uh, was that I met this uh, teacher named Guru Singh, um, and he lived in Los Angeles. He was up here in Vancouver, where we live, and I was really taken with him. Like my partner had started doing Kundalini when she was pregnant, and I was like, mm, I don't think I'm gonna do the whole like all white and beard and turban and that's not for me and all the things you know i'm happy with my alan watts and ram das and a little bit of drugs and drinking but also do my yoga and but i mean the truth is i, I wasn't really happy during those times i, I thought i was happy um, but i had so much stress and, and anxiety in my life and uh so i met guru singh and i when i saw him i was like i could do that not not like I could do that, like ego, like I could do that better than him, but I could really see myself in him as a teacher. And, uh, you know, if, if your listeners don't know who he is, I mean, this is a man in his mid 70s who has more health and vitality than many friends my own age. Uh, zest for life, musician, used to play with the Grateful Dead back in the day. He was best friends with Janis Joplin, an incredible guy who's been doing kundalini yoga for 50 years and and really inspiring as a family member and householder as well so i was super taken with him and i just reached out to him not knowing him met him once and was like would you ever think of mentoring me like i want to i don't really care too much about kundalini yoga i just want to hang around with you was kind of the thing and he was like sure and so we had our first session. We were on a call just like we are now between the two of us. And I told him everything that was happening with the previous investors at the old space. And he straight up was like, you need to leave that place. And I was like, yeah, but you don't understand. Like I have contractual agreements and I might have to go to court and blah, 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 all the yeah, but noise. And yeah. he was like, it doesn't matter. Just go. It'll, it'll all work out. Yeah. And so, so I did go and there was, you know, it was a mess. And, um, but it was one of the best decisions that I've ever made in my life. And, um, my partner, she was like, you need to stop drinking if you want to still be in this family, basically ultimatum. And, uh, I had a history with substance. I tried treatment when I was in, in my twenties and I was able to manage as I went along, but I knew it was time to stop. And so I said to myself, you know, they have this practice in Kundalini Yoga called Aquarian Sadhana. It's a traditional sadhana, happens every morning at 4 a.m., uh, takes about two and a half hours to do it. And so I said to myself, look, I'm going to do this Aquarian Sadhana. I'm going to do it for 90 days without missing a day, which is a big thing to start waking up at 3.30, especially for somebody who's been drinking a lot and smoking a lot of weed. It's hard to get out of bed when you're smoking a lot of weed. 
<laughs> and uh, so I said, if I can do that for 90 days, I know that I won't need to go to a treatment center. I know I have the discipline and the willpower to do it on my own. And That's so cool. I did. Three yeah. months. Yeah. So I did it for 90 days. And then I kept going. And wow. then I, because it was so potent. And then I did it for nine months straight and I didn't miss a day. And that nine months of the Kundalini Yoga, that's where it was like, holy smokes, I've never experienced anything like this before. Like I, I knew that I was home and, and I still know that I'm home. And there's a lot on the surface that's challenging about it. Like I've tried to get rid of this turban and beard on multiple occasions over the years because I'm just like, you know, I get tired of the tension from people like, you know, staring and, uh, you know, and also I'm like, you know, I'm tattooed and I love fashion and I love rock and roll and I love all of those things. And, and I'm able to navigate both, but it can be, it's kind of my dark, my karma or something like I have to deal with these two things. Like uh, when you saw me speak over the summer, I've got Lemmy from Motorhead tattooed on my left wrist. And I've got Guru Nanak, the first guru of the Sikhs, tattooed on my right wrist. And the idea is to live my life somewhere between the two. Because when I go too far in either directions, things get a little bit messy. But the, the for sure thing is that Kundalini Yoga is the, the way for me. And I draw from many inspirations. I draw from Zen. I draw from music. I draw from film. I draw from travel. I draw from... But the, the big one, because of the transformation of my own life, is Kundalini Yoga. And um, I'm learning to navigate it in my own way. And I created my own vow around the turban, especially because there's stigma around it. And the vow is, I will never take a turban off or put a turban on because of fear or shame. That's my vow. And so it, then, that way it's not about other people and it's not about rules and dogma. Uh, because as I've explained here, um, one or the other is not going to work for me. It's about really tuning in to what's in alignment. And, and the practice allows me to do that. And I'm, I'm also really blessed to have a mentor who gives me the green light to do that. You know, he's not saying, Guru Singh never said, you should, you know, only wear a turban or, or anything like that. It's not about that. And, and also, I think it's important to say that this is not a black belt. You know, like in some spiritual traditions, you do it enough and then you get the beard and the turban. It's not about that. The practice will work for anybody. Mm. And then how you, it will enhance what you're here to do. You know what I mean? So yeah. if you're here to be a Sikh really and you didn't know it yet, what's that? It would be really interesting if, yeah, if I do it long enough, I could actually grow a beard. <laughs> yeah, well, you never know. But it just brings out what you're meant to do you know and 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 that i think that's an amazing thing and i think that the hang-ups around how it looks like that stopped me from doing this powerful practice and and i know now looking back that those hang-ups like that's prejudice and that comes from conditioning and um i feel so lucky to do a practice now that's starting to break down some of that social conditioning and allow me to see beyond the surface of individuals through the deep experience of meditation and listening. So in a nutshell, that's how I got here. That's awesome. I, I appreciate that, that like deep insight right from the get-go. I feel, um, you know, so I had uh, Guru Ganesha Singh on 
this uh, Ganesha Khalsa on this on this call. Um, oh, nice! I haven't listened to that. I got to go back and listen to that. Yeah, it was it was a blast. You can imagine he's so yes. nice. and I'm sure at at some point in time, Guru Singh will will have time for one of those sessions as well. So Kundalini Yoga and the way the community has kind of shown me a way into in, into its 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 practice. What I can say for me personally, it's it's just clearly really powerful to practice several hours mm -hmm. a day in this intensity, especially if you do, as you said, like Aquarian uh, sadhana and wake up at 4 a.m. and really dig into the teachings around the like electromagnetic fields we're building there with ourselves and to the planet, you know? And so mm -hmm. there's no question in my experience that it works. Mm -hmm. Personally, it does. so I think because I feature different forms of teachings and different forms of practice, um, Kundalini Yoga has actually really had a positive, powerful impact in my life. And I think it's important to have these dialogues and conversations, especially because stigma and dogma are still so real, even in 2020. And when we're able to go beyond that and look at what is the power of a practice, the power of meditation, the power of listening, the power of Kriya Yoga, um, the power of singing and chanting, it's simply real. It's, I mean, it's, it's present in other yoga lineages as well, right? Yes, for sure. I think a great way to look at the broad spectrum of Kundalini Yoga is we have a, a gathering in New Mexico on solstice where you go up on top of this mountain at the height of the sun, you know, in, in New Mexico. Super hot, super dusty, 2,000 people all chanting and practicing. And that in itself, obviously, is really powerful. But you also get to see sort of like how this came to be the way it is. Because when our teacher, Yogi Bhajan, brought this practice from India in the 1960s, uh, a lot of the people that he was connecting with were hippies who, you know, they weren't finding what they were looking for in the drug culture um, or, you know, they wanted to do spiritual practice and they weren't sure how to find it in the religion of their parents or, you know, whatever it was, they were searching for something. And, uh, the cool thing is when you go even today in the two thousands, you see this broad spectrum of like the hippies who, who, you know, remained really free and their kids got into the practice. And, and then there are the people who really wanted to take the uh, spiritual practice to another level. And so Yogi Bhajan directed them to his teacher, which is the Guru Granth Sahib or the uh, scripture of the Sikhs. And so there's these wild, you know, hippies and also these like really, um, you know, stoic sort of Sikhs. And not all of them are stoic, but it's, it's just this mishmash of people. And I, I think it's a, such a funny family reunion because you see like, you know, there's the guys who go there and they go to all the different festivals and they haven't worn shoes in a couple of years and they're walking around with their shirt off and then they'll be doing some work for the festival and then they'll be like, oh, the Sikhs are coming. We better put our shirts on. And so then they put their shirts on and, and then, you know, some of the Sikhs think that they should be Sikhs, the hippies, and the hippies think that the Sikhs should calm down. And just like any family reunion, you see that, like, we need all of them. Because Yogi Bhajan, he gave a lot of the business uh, to the people who were a little more uh, disciplined in their practice so they could handle the money. But also he wanted those really free creative people. And I, I think if you're going to have 
a, a family that is going to share a teaching that's going to have a profound impact on the world. You need that broad array of people. And I think it was so cool how he gave the green light uh, to a lot of people in that way, because, you know, there's a lot of religious sort of seemingly religious practices that don't uh, encourage that, that sort of freedom. And then there's a lot of, like my teacher would say, the reason the sixties didn't work is that it was all, you know, free love with no discipline. And it just fizzled out because without any discipline, that free love just becomes a mess. And and I think we need both. And just cool to see it exhibited in you know the flesh by people and how they're living. And I feel really at home with that as the person who's lived with one foot in the ashram and one foot uh, in the nightclub. You know, because I draw a lot of inspiration from art and from music and from expressing myself and also like my sadhana my daily practice my devotion to the guru my daily prayers um, that allows me to the freedom to do what i love be a better father be a better business person and enjoy what i love in the world and also make an impact uh, on the world by sharing this teaching to people who not everyone's going to get up at 3 30 in the morning some people are going to do a five or ten minute long kundalini yoga meditation and have a profound experience that's going to help them with anxiety or help them quit smoking. And that's awesome. And, and that might be all they connect to in kundalini yoga, but it's still beneficial, you know? So I think that's the great thing about what our teacher gave us is it's really a broad stroke of practice and you can kind of get in where it serves you. There are a few, there are a few questions that, that are kind of highlighting in my, in my listening mind there. One, first I want to touch on the word guru because I have heard you in your own podcast that if the word doesn't work for you, use the word higher self or use the word uh, God or enlightenment. But the word guru alone shouldn't be like a, like a stumble stone for people. Yeah. Yeah. The, the way that I use the word guru is I call it the enlightenment principle. Mm. And, I, and I say like, Guru is, a lot of people have hangups with the word because they think it's like bowing to some person that's right. higher than them. And, and the first guru of the Sikhs, one of my uh, primary teachers, he said very clearly that nobody is higher and nobody's lower. There's no hierarchy. There's no, you know, there's the great so-and-so and I'm the lowly Tiagaprem Singh. It's not about that. It's that there's this enlightenment principle that is in everyone it's kind of like primal wisdom or something like the wisdom that has been there throughout the ages before time even um and, and you have access to that and and guru means to transform from ignorance to knowledge it's like the the principle that makes you aware of the what is as opposed to the what should be something like that so i think about guru like that and you may see that principle in another person or you may see that principle in nature or you may see that principle in music or art or but when you start thinking about guru like that all that's happening is you're becoming more aware right it's like rather than taking things for the surface value you're becoming more aware that there is wisdom in everything, that that enlightenment principle is operating all the time within you and around you. And as Ram Dass, who just left his body recently, would say, uh, if you know how to listen, everything is the guru. That's, that's sort of the idea. It's a principle of awakening that's everywhere at once. If you're paying attention, you can tap into it while you're busy doing your householder duties. Totally. 
So in that context, which without going deeper into like the stigma around religious words and, and faith-based words, because I think they're, they're across the world associated with basically any group of faith at this point. But within that yeah. context of seeing this principle of bringing light to the darkness or understanding and knowledge to ignorance, in your own words, Tiago Prem, what do, you, what do you think the world needs most right now? Yeah, I think uh, I think the big word is awareness for me, you know, and, and awareness is sort of a tricky word because it's not aware. Awareness to me is like the neutral part of the mind. Like if you think about that, there's a positive part of your mind and a negative part of your mind, that everything works in pairs of opposites. Um, you know, there's good and bad, there's this and that, there's day and night, there's all these pairs of opposites. And uh, I think what happens often in our lives, not just spiritual circles, but human lives, we've got this notion that somehow if we could just have good all the time and no bad, like feel good, don't feel bad, uh, have pleasure, never have any pain, then we would be happy. And I think that that's a real letdown because if I look at my life, the greatest gifts that allow me to show up and do the work that I do came from pain. And I didn't go looking for the pain. You know, my first meditation teacher, she said, wow, you're a keen student. You want to become awakened in this life? I said, oh yes, please. You know, more than anything. And she was like, okay, you want to be awakened in this life? Pray for more problems. And I was like, maybe not this life. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll take a few rounds. And, and at, at the time, you know, I, I didn't really understand what that means. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that's the awareness piece. And, and this is what I've learned from the traditions that I, I've studied and practiced. And that is good and bad is coming. Pain is a necessary part of life. But if we can cultivate a practice that brings awareness, like that neutral part of the mind or the meditative part of the mind, we can go through the good and the bad, the challenges and the solutions, knowing that every challenge has a solution, every solution has a challenge, and awareness will allow us to sort of feel a little bit of a pause before we react to a situation. And to me, that pause comes from my meditation. Me getting up, you know, most days, 90% of the time early, before the rest of the family, even though I don't really feel like it most of the time, going into that deep meditative state on a regular basis, that allows me to feel, it's kind of like when I wake up, I have nine seconds to get up and do my sadhana. If I don't get up in nine seconds, then I've got a whole story or I fall back asleep. Right. And just practicing that nine seconds, nine seconds, nine seconds, and then being in meditation, what happens is I start to feel that nine seconds when I'm in, uh, involved in the world. Like my partner says something that hurt my feelings. It wasn't her intention to hurt my feelings. She just said, was saying what, you know, she needed me to do something and that hurt me. If I'm not doing my sadhana, I'm going to react to my daily practice. I'm going to react to that. And then I'm going to create more karma or more problems as a result. Whereas if I'm doing my sadhana once in a while and she'll verify this that only once in a while not all the time i will feel that same nine second pause before i say something i don't want to say and then we go forward i don't create more problems and then my life becomes a little easier to manage my pain doesn't go away 
um, you know, but I do have a more awareness around positive and negative. It doesn't sound like much, but let's say that everybody in the entire world or even just in Canada where I live or, you know, in North America, if everybody had the capacity to just be a little more aware, to feel a little more connected just for that nine seconds before they respond to something, that would make a huge impact on the world. And, and to me, that is a, awareness. And I guess I would also say with, with that comes tolerance too. Because emotionally, when I'm upset with my, with my partner who might hurt my feelings, you know, I can be intolerant because of my emotionalism. But if I can hear her and then be like, have the awareness in that nine seconds to be like, I know she doesn't mean the way I'm perceiving it and then respond, then there's more peace in the home. And, and I think that can happen on a grander scale. And it all comes through some kind of meditative practice. Very powerful. I absolutely concur and agree in my own experience that that buffer of being reactionary or being in the contemplative part of myself is directly related to the way I practice and directly related to, to the way I show up in, in my daily practices. Another question I have for you is what is required for you to trust? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think that for me, trustworthiness is true prosperity. That's one thing I want to say. I learned that from our teacher, Yogi Bhajan, and everybody wants to be prosperous. So trust is a huge thing, you know, if that's the case. And so for me, trust is really, it's the same thing as what we were talking about. You'll find with me, everything comes back to your daily sadhana, your daily practice. Because if I say to myself, let's say that I say to myself, and I learned this from recovery too. If I say to myself, okay, I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to do this particular thing and then I don't do it, that's going to cause some major issues for myself and then that's going to impact the other people that I'm in relationship with. For example, you know, we, we went for a nice lunch down by the water when I was visiting in Victoria. Mm -hmm. and, and imagine I said, you know, meet me. At, I can't remember the name of the place, but uh, it, it was a really Meditation. nice restaurant. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so let's say I say, meet me there at 10 o'clock. We're going to have a nice breakfast together. And you go, okay, great, cool. And then you show up at 10 o'clock and I'm not there. Then I call you up. I'm like, hey, you know, something happened. Um, can we do it tomorrow? You're like, yeah, let's do it tomorrow. And the next day comes and let's say I'm there. So you're like, okay, great. I said, let's get together again tonight, finish this conversation. You say, okay, meet me 6 p.m. at this other spot. 6 p.m. comes, again, I'm not there. And that's in a short period of time. But at this point, you're like, I'm not really going to spend any more time with this guy. He's unreliable. I thought he was a good guy. La, 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 la. Well, how many times do we do that to ourselves? You know, I've done it to myself millions of times, you know, and when, and when you do something like that to somebody, it creates an image around the person where there's no trust. And if you don't trust yourself, they say in Ayurveda, the, almost also a student of Ayurveda, that the primordial cause of disease is not knowing who you are. Well, if you, if you can't rely on yourself to show up, yeah. you don't really know who you are. You don't know the value of who you are. 
and without that trust, nobody else is going to trust you either. But if you say to yourself, I'm going to show up, I'm going to do this thing, and most of the time you show up, then that trust is, that you have in yourself is going to become magnetic. People around you are going to be like, wow, I don't know why. It's going to be conscious, but there's something about this person that I know I can trust. And especially as a, a male yoga teacher in these times, this is incredibly important. Because in my years, 20 years of practice, I've seen a lot of scandal, especially around male uh, teachers in spiritual circles. And I I feel really lucky to have a mentor and even people like Guru Ganesha, who you mentioned before. When I met them, I I was so moved by what great parents they were and grandparents and fathers and their zest for life. And I think it's important to have mentorship and to see that uh in another person also supports it but really trust is incredibly important and trust comes from you making commitments to yourself yogi bhajan used to say let your will win when it comes to practice so that means i'm going to do two minutes of long deep breathing through my nose every day i'm going to do it after dinner time and i'm not going to miss a day for 30 days if you do that The benefit of that is far beyond just breathing for two minutes. It's in your consistency of showing up for you that cultivates trust and makes you a more magnetic person for prosperity to come into your life. Thank you for this, for this answer on the trust question is one of my favorite questions to ask because trust is different things to different people. And also in the interpersonal relationship building, trust plays a really large role culturally different of course, as well. However, what, you, what I heard you say in there really resonates with my personal kind of philosophy as well. At the end of the day, why are we doing all these practices? Whatever practice it is that you, you're listening or choosing, if it is um, a practice of meditation, of kundalini yoga, or if it is a practice of certain plant traditions or certain elder traditions or certain journaling traditions, we're doing these practices to have a clear sense of who we are and to be able to apply ourselves powerfully to reality. And so that ability has so much to do with the ability to trust yourself in the way you create agreements and the way you, you show up. And yeah, I definitely agree with you too. Like with myself, probably more than with any other person in the world, I've broken my own agreements over and over again, which is part of the pain cycle too, right? Because if you have an agreement with yourself, even if it is, if it is, it's the new year, I'm going to go to the gym five times a week. And once you don't do that, you feel not just shitty for a moment, but you, you, you might even go all the way to rock bottom and feel like I'm worthless and I can't even, can't even keep up this simple thing. And so everyone has their own story of that, but trust ultimately relates for me to absolute power to apply yourself into this reality and into this shared world. For sure. I have a, a follow-up question there for you because it reminded me just now of another teaching of yours you were sharing at the kundalini um men's camp last summer and i'm gonna paraphrase right because you were teaching it and i just remember this one sentence but it stuck with me actually it stuck with me quite a bit and you were speaking about the quality of energy we contribute to any room or space we're in and the moment i'm alone the space is inhabited by me but the moment there's mm-hmm. even just one other person coming in, the quality of space is a co-creation. And you were saying mm-hmm. something along the line of 
who are you in any given room? And what would it be if your goal was to be the most relaxed person in the room? Yes. Yeah, I think that to me is, you know, it's like when you know who you are, the universe can serve you. It's kind of like aligning. We've got these, these ideas in Ayurveda and Samkhya philosophy that kind of spill it out. And, and it's using big words. This is really simple. Sort of like the idea that they have a word called manas. <coughs> Excuse me. Manas is like the sound of your individual thoughts. Like you're listening to your own voice inside your own head. And then there's this other sound called mahat buddhi. Like where we get the word Buddha. And Mahat means great. So that's like the, the voice of the infinite one or, or something to that effect. And the idea is to when you align those two sounds into one sound, happiness will arise. Mm. It's sort of like you know who you are. I love this story about the 10th master in the Sikh tradition. His name is Guru Gobind Singh. He was a great warrior. He freed a lot of people. He stood for truth and justice. He wasn't afraid. Uh, you know, he was definitely the most comfortable person in the face of great death and forced conversions to other religions. And, you know, he, he was not afraid and was also a poet, you know, like a, a sage and an artist and also a warrior. So he's a big influence on, on me. And there's this great story where an elderly person comes to the, the great 10th master and they say, I wish I could do what you do, but look at me, I'm old. Um, I, I can't remember things. My health is not that good. And uh, what could I do? You know, like, there's nothing I can do. Like that worthless part that you're saying. <coughs> Excuse me, I got something going on with my throat here. Um, but there's nothing that I could do, just playing small, basically because of this physical structure. And, and he said, you can do exactly what I do if you understand this one teaching and you repeat it all the time. And I wear it on my wrist all the time on uh, one of these steel bracelets. bracelets. You would have seen it when we were in uh, men's camp. And he said, recite and live these words. Ad such, you God such, heavy such, nanika hosidi such, which means you're born infinite, you're infinite your whole life. You're infinite even now. And you will always be infinite. That's what he said. And then even the messenger of death can't touch you, the teachings say. Even if you feel small, even if you're intimidated by somebody, even if you look out at the world and you think, oh my God, we're really screwing this up. There's no hope for us humans. Even if you, whatever it is that's going on, you have a deep sense of knowing who you are, uh, you'll be free. And to me, that's kind of how I, I look at things, you know, like, can I, and even having a child, like when my daughter, like, I want to impart this teaching to my daughter that we're sharing now, but you got to make it really simple because she's seven. And the simple teaching is, and, and those are great for all of us. Like Jesus said, you know, become like a child. That's where the freedom comes. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, I say to her, you're amazing. And everybody in your school is equal to you. That's the teaching. 
And when you understand that you're amazing and that everybody around you has the same capacity to be amazing, you can step into that knowing. And there's, there's nobody higher and nobody lower. And it's easy to philosophize about it and talk about it on the podcast. And we all go, oh, yeah, that's great. And then we go out there. It's not that easy. But I, I, and that's where I think the practice comes in. You know, like I'll look down at my wrist or I say my mantra. And the, all, it's all about that is that I'm born here with a purpose and with a destiny. And the teachings say it's written on the inside of your forehead in the tradition that I practice. So you have to, you know, get quiet, close your eyes and, and look. And if you do get quiet, you, you've experienced this in meditation, you know, you'll get these little insights about where, where to be and what to do. And they don't generally come when you're arguing with your partner or, you know, taking out the trash or, you know, paying your taxes. That's not when the insights come. They come when you get quiet. And if you can connect with that part of you, then I find you may have more moments where you're in a challenging situation and you're able to be who you are as opposed to controlled or manipulated by the karma or the condition that you're experiencing. And that's what it means, you know, and I've gotten better and better at it. And the better and better I am at being myself, the more the world around me can serve me, not so I can, you know, be better than everybody, but so that I can be my best self and so I can serve the whole, like a healthy cell in the body. You know, really healthy cells want other cells to be healthy. And we all sort of work together to manage this realm of opposites, pain and pleasure. And so that's what it means to me. And Yogi Bhajan, he would always say, just be you. And when you hear that teaching, you think, oh, it's just this cliche motherly advice that hopefully your mother gave you, not all mothers gave. Um, but if you really dig into that, what does it really mean to just be you? I think that's what it means. It means in any circumstance to really be yourself, even if it doesn't make sense to other people, even if it doesn't make sense to the tradition that you practice, even if it doesn't make sense to your own partner or your parents. Um, if you are true to yourself and you have a practice, a dharma, a way of life to support that, then prosperity will be yours. Um, and you can become uh, the sage and the warrior, a peacemaker in a time where we need people uh, who are able to do that, not just go along with the status quo, or even worse, be pushed around by the status quo. The bridge builder in our modern times, right? Into the, the next level of, of human society, beyond yeah. old nation states, beyond the old myths of separation. I really like yeah. where you went with this. I feel like that, that could potentially set us up for like a, another hour of conversation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I, I just thought, I just thought yeah. of something when you said the bridge builder. I just read, read something by the mystic Kabir this morning. I love his, his writing. And, and he said, don't be a bridge, be a brick in a bridge. Mm -hmm. And when you hear that, you think, oh, is that playing small? But then when you really meditate on it, you see it's working together as the whole to be the bridge. That's a powerful metaphor. And actually one of the core subjects of my life experience, the, the, the last and uh, first 32, 33 years here as being Julian in this world is, you know, what you described for me is also part of purpose is be you is part of embodying your purpose. That's, that's why I call it planetary purpose in my, in my teachings, because at the end of the day, being you also requires the others around you and the collaborative field we're in. And 
you know, I'm interculturally, I've always been a bridge in many places I, I walk and, and be. And then I realize, well, but just me walking and being that isn't quite enough for a full bridge. It's like, yeah. it's the first messenger for many people, but unless there's others who have their own way of being a similar brick in the big bridge, countries don't really communicate that well. They communicate under these old understandings of separation. And the same goes mm -hmm. for cultural groups and ethnicities and um, obviously faith groups. And, and so coming from that way of thinking right now, um, because I, I, I know we have another few minutes here um, for, for this first episode, my core question, Jagger Prem, that started this podcast is what is your vision for the planet if you were to go into a seven generational thinking? If for a second here, you would imagine seven generations is roughly 200, 210 years, our society was able to pick up this way of thinking from the indigenous and native people around the world. What do you believe is possible? What do you believe what kind of values um, would be alive? Hmm. Yeah, that's a bit. That's a big question. I think some of the keys, I believe, are learning to, uh, you know, in the study of Ayurveda. What I notice is having a child is that nobody's really talking about in the school system about the elements being the primary teachers, like earth, water, fire, breath ether the you know the vehicle through which all these elements travel and uh, this is simple stuff when you really get it down to it and it's actually the real material that builds everything that you know including the bodies that we live in and for that not to be a primary focus that to me is, shows that sort of the disconnect has come with the way we treat the planet and so i think that's incredibly important and i think that you know we're going to be forced to pay attention to that and that's already happening because of uh, ecological issues um you know but so i think in order for us to create that change that's a big one and then also the uh creating a meditative space is a big one so if we could make learning from there's this great uh story where somebody goes to granonic and they say you know what re what religion are you to him and he says, well, you know, what religion is the earth? And they're like, yeah, yeah, cute. You know, in India, they want to, even now, if you travel to India, you have to put on your visa application what religion you are. And I think, what? <laughs> what should I write? I feel like writing the earth, you know, or something like that, just like not it. So even in his time, 500 years ago, he's saying, what religion is the earth? And then they're like, yeah, yeah, but what caste are you? And he says, well, what cast is the wind? And, and to me, you know, I think if we can get to a way of thinking like that, where it's not, I don't want to get rid of any religions. I think that there's great value to a lot of the faiths that exist. I just don't want any new religions. What I want is to get away from the dogma, use what we already have. We don't need new ways of faith, but have new ways of looking at the true teacher, the guru, the enlightenment principle that's in everything. And to me, that's going to come through. Sound is a big one, like sing together. You know, when I was in India recently, I saw a young man who had the, a tattoo of the, all the names of um, Allah tattooed on his wrist. 
He had uh, a cutta, a steel, the steel bracelet of the six, and he had a tilak marking on his forehead, meaning he'd just been to the uh, Hindu mandir or the Hindu temple. And to me, like, that's what the future looks like. It's like, how can we see the one in all? And if we can learn to see the one in all with the primary teacher being those elements, we can start to create this massive shift that needs to happen. And, and what does that look like down the line? It looks like sound is better listeners. It looks like a deeper connection to the earth and the elements, understanding that, you know, like the Buddha said, when, to be awakened means you don't stand uh, and look at the river you are the river mm. that's the big awakening that you're not outside of the river you are the river so we can get to that place where we sing together we make music together yawned i'm a this and you're a that we connect to the earth together you know like a lot of people use plant medicines and that kind of thing like my partner she likes to she sits with ayahuasca she's involved in that that doesn't work for me you know i, I i'm not i don't feel called to that but we live in the same house and we serve the same purpose. Yeah. And that's really what it's about. It's not, I know that if I say to her, well, you need to do this and exactly like I do in order for us to be happy. I know that that's a cop out, first of all. And that means that I'm not secure enough in my own faith to see that there's a oneness that's in the plants, that's in the mantras that I teach. It's not different. And if I'm listening on a deeper level through the meditative practices, I can see what she does and what I do are the same thing. And if she can do what she does as a means for healing herself and others, and I can do what I do as a means for healing myself and others, our ability as a couple who works in the healing and has a healing center, we have a broader reach. But if I say you should do what I do, and then she doesn't do what she does, we have a narrower reach. So it comes from this deep listening and noticing not what makes us different, but what makes us more similar, what makes us one. And, and, if we, and even in, uh, with money and economics, you know, it's like not what can I get out of this, but how can I serve? And then in serving, you know, I, I, you can have an abundant lifestyle. You need a car, you can have a car. You just, you know, we need one that is, it takes better care of the, the earth and her elements or, you know, I've got a lot of records, you know, I love uh, the music producer, Rick Rubin. He said, all, all music is spiritual music, yeah. you know, because it comes from spirit. That's where music comes from. So I think, you know, the big shift needs to come through deep listening and connecting to the earth and then, you know, work with, work with each other to see that. And I think we have the capacity to do it. We just got to get out of our heads. And then whatever practice will help you get out of your head, whether it's sitting with Mother Ayahuasca, whether it's chanting the sacred songs of previous uh, faiths or traditions, or whether it's just working with the earth and trying to heal the damage that we've done to her waters and to the air, or whatever it is that connects you on a deeper level to that guru principle, you connect to that we're going to see incredible things uh, in, in the generations to come. And also I like to mention that the insight for, for what to do and how to do it comes from the meditations. Like, um, you know, you, you get ideas that they're coming from somewhere. Like where do those ideas come from? They already exist within the ethers or within the great intelligence. 
you got to listen to draw them in. So I guess it all comes down to listening. That's the big one. Uh, in the prayer I say every morning, it says, only through deep listening can pain and error be dissolved. And that's what it's about. Listening to yourself, listening to each other, listening to the earth. And I would say if you look at the world and you wanted to pinpoint what's the big issue with humans and the destruction we cause to this planet and to each other, I would say that we have a listening problem. Very powerfully put. Those are great words to end this first of hopefully many dialogues on let's commit to a deeper listening in our daily practice in the way we engage with each other. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, having me on here. It's always a blessing to reason and share with each other. And that's that. Another episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights, knowledge, and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life, into your relationships, or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world. Because this is a movement and we're all part of it, very much so, and we're in this together. We're here to create a world of a triple bottom line, where you win, I win, and the entire planet wins. We're raising consciousness together, and you know that. That's why you're listening, that's why I love you. So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app, Invite a friend to listen to a Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you, free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self, the state of social impact in the world, and for you to connect and listen to who you could support of the people that I actually interview because their missions are ongoing and a lot of them need more collaboration. And after more than 100 episodes now, with some of the world's leading social impact experts, I have synthesized my most inspired learnings and takeaways to create coaching and mentorship programs for you and the people around you. Let me share with you about planetary purpose coaching and mentorship experiences. If you're in a space in your life where you're ready to level up to amplify who you are, what's coming through you and what you're doing to give your gift to the world, then I would love to hear from you and I'd love for you to apply to one of my private mentorships or group mentorships because getting all of the juice, all of that life force that's in you out into the world is something you deserve and the entire world around us deserves. Also, I work with people who are entirely new to this, to the topic of planetary purpose or the topic of meditation, the topic of inside evolution and revolution. And if that's you and you're ready to step out of the ordinary and into creation, or if you know someone who is totally ready for that, make sure to check out the website or share the website. And you can also always shoot me a message on Instagram. I'll definitely read it and get back to you. Because, like, guys, this is real life. Let's be in touch and let's create this together. Last but not least, there's a few different group experiences I host, both in person and online. All of them are quantum learning environments, and I'm happy to tell you more. So simply inform yourself and stay connected, because whatever resonates with you, I'm here to support you and bring out more purpose into the world. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, make sure to be you, show up all the way, be all in. Connect with someone today, make them smile, have yourself a stellar day. Lots of love to you and until soon.